Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. You know, I've been saying for the last few weeks that uh, this podcast, we might like hit 200 episodes and I might change or do a new podcast or something. And I just wanted to share like when you, when you get yourself out of the mindset or the vision that you look at things, everything changes. So I did a coaching session yesterday with a, with a new coach. And my coach that I've always had, who's been on this podcast, Mark Hunter is amazing. We've worked together for four years. He's like one of my favorite humans, but I've been looking in other directions for other ways of support. And I, and I did a session with a new coach yesterday and we were talking about this podcast and, and the books I'm writing and what I'm up to. And all of a sudden at the end of it, I was like, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should just reframe and readjust and rebrand and recreate and like just evolve this thing to the next thing. And it, it, it's kind of like spurred the thought about like all the places we can do that. The idea that you can do that with relationships, you can do that with the places that you live, you can do that with your business, that we live in a world that we're often taught to like, oh, if something isn't working, if we don't like how something's going, if something isn't getting us the results we want, we need to change it. We need to like, we need to like find something new, do something different. And I love the idea that like with a reframe, with shifting who we're being, with uh, with making some adjustments, we can completely create a new relationship out of the thing that we already had. And it can be brand new again, but different. So I just wanted to share that because I, I know I always think like whatever I'm going through, whatever I'm looking at, I'm not alone. I'm not so special that all the things that I'm doing are just about me. So it's like I would ask you as a listener, hey, what do you what are you feeling burned out on? What are you feeling stagnant? Where are you feeling stuck? Where are things not going well? And this could be business, personal, professional. I do this with all of my clients that if all you simply said is, Hey, I want to reinvent. I want to reinvent my love life. I want to reinvent my relationship to my body. I want to reinvent my relationship to money, to my college debt, to my boss. And you chose how you wanted to reinvent it. Like, just like I'm giving, I could be giving this podcast a makeover. How would you make over those relationships? But it starts with you. How would you make over you that then that would make over the relationship? Um, let me talk about our guest because uh, this guy has done, well, he, he, I'm reading his book, which I was just telling him I love. And I didn't know when I picked it up, I was like, well, this book looks really cool. Like it looks, it looks like a cool book, but I was like, man, I've read a lot of books about success and and getting better and, I was like, how is this going to be different? And what the first thing I said to him when, when we just met was, man, his book reads like a, like, like a really calm ocean. And I don't know if you can resonate with that, but we've all seen the ocean where it's like there's white caps and it's really rocky and there's a smoothness and ease to the way this book reads. So I'm reading things that I know, I'm reading things that I don't know, and I'm not getting like highs and lows. I'm not like, oh, this part's boring or this part's super exciting. Like I'm just at this smooth place, which is really nice because then you kind of just keep turning pages and you just keep going and you're not like jerked around. I think a lot of people, a lot of authors, there's these highs and lows and that can, for some of us, that's great. And for some of us, it's not, but I think knowing like what you're getting in that ease is really nice. His book, if you're, if you happen to watch this video at some point, it's behind me, but I'll kind of hold it up. It's called learn, improve, master, how to develop any skill and excel at it. Um, his name is Nick Vasquez. He is, first of all, he's an author. Um, he's the founder of unlimitedmastery.com. He's a real estate investor. And he has something I really want to talk to him about his, his experiences because he was born in Colombia. 
he's in Montreal right now, but he's also lived in Japan. And he was telling me before we got into this, some stories about Japanese culture and the people that I found really interesting. And it's almost like what I'm craving. It's like what I wish we had in the United States where I am. Um, but I've also never been to an Asian country and Japan is one of the ones at the top of my list. And just after a few minutes talking to him, I was like, man, I need to go to Japan. I need to already book a trip. So maybe that'll happen by the end of this episode. Nick, welcome to the Dream Mason podcast. How are you, man? Alex, thanks so much for having me. Doing great. Thanks a lot. Dude, thanks for writing this book. Um, like I said, there's so many books on topics like this, right? But there's some, there's like a, there's an ease and a, and, um, and a flow about how you write that makes it feel unique and different. Um, I'm just, I'm kind of curious, like the, it was that the intention, like what was, what was the intention when you set out to write it? Yeah, that was the idea. First, I wanted to take a step back for a second. Sure. Uh, I wanted to comment on what you were talking about with your podcast and please trying to give it a new direction and all of this. And there is an analogy that I try to keep in mind a lot of a watchmaker. So let's say that you have in a watch hundreds of pieces and then let's say dozens of pieces and most of them are in place and the watch will not work. And it could be out of just one piece that is not working. But to your eye, it looks like it's not working, like it's broken. It only thinks one tweak, and now you make it work. So that's something that I try to keep in mind in some of my projects. Like that watchmaker analogy, maybe it's just one piece that is missing and everything else is in the right place. So just something to keep in mind. I, I love that. That's that. great. That's a great analogy. It's totally true, right? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> mine is like, hey, you can reinvent the whole thing, and you're like, hey, you could, and it could just be one little aspect that if you change the one thing, the whole thing actually shifts and becomes exactly. different. Exactly. So something to think about. Now, um, going back to the book, yes. So the whole story about the book is that I've always been obsessed with learning, always picking up different hobbies, but I was frustrated by how long it would take me to go from knowledge into skills. So one thing is knowing about something, another one is knowing how to do it. So out of that frustration, I started researching and trying to find a book that would teach me how to become a better learner. I was trying to find a book that I eventually wrote, but I, I never intended to write a book. I was just gathering all this information, trying to create a manual that was gonna be my go-to for the rest of my life on how to learn better. And halfway through the process, after so many years of research, I figure if I'm going to solve it for myself, I might as well solve it for everyone else. So turning to a book, had I known the amount of work that was ahead of me, I don't think I would have done it. So it's lucky that I was ignorant about how difficult it is to put a book together. And what you said about the book reading very easily, that's to me is the greatest compliment. And when people say reading in an afternoon, that's what makes me feel the best because I put a lot of effort into becoming a better writer. So when I finished the first drafts, I said, this is garbage. I need to throw it out because it reads like a very science book. And it did because most of what I read was scientific. So you're reading scientific papers and learning, books and learning, how, how we learn. It's all science. And my book read kind of the same way. And I didn't want that. It's, it's already a book on learning how to learn. That's a difficult sell for people. So I knew that the <laughs> writing had to be on point. And I remember a book that I picked up on writing called On Writing Well by William Sintler. And I couldn't put it down. And it's a book on writing. I said, well, how is this guy doing this? This doesn't make sense to me. He's just keeping yeah. me engaged. So I started learning on how to write better. And my goal was that the book felt like a gentle current carrying you downstream instead of what most books feel like, which is climbing a mountain. Like you're climbing this treacherous road <laughs> trying to get to knowledge. I yeah. wanted the opposite. I wanted that it felt like it was carrying you down very gently. So that one sentence would lead you to the next one. So there was a lot of effort and many other drafts getting the writing draft, uh, the, the writing right. Even though the content was already on point, it's what I wanted it to be, but the writing was lacking. That's what led me to study writing and to become a better writer, to keep working on that. One of the things that I try to do is, so a lot of my background is on music. And what I did is I, when I was doing the editing, I'll be playing Vival this summer and it's fast paced and it's kind of continuous thing. And I was reading the chapter as I was listening to the song. And whenever I felt the writing interfered in my hearing of the music, I knew that there was something wrong there. There was a pothole. I needed to fix it. So that's kind of how I went about the, the editing. It needed to feel like it was this continuous song just playing in the background. So when you say it was like being on the ocean without 
all the wind and it's just kind of cruising through it. That was on purpose. That was by design and it was really, really difficult to do. And I'm so glad that you say it because it validates all the, all the work that went behind it. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and for those like paying attention to this and listening to this conversation, like I had no idea. We never talked before. You know, you sent me a copy of the book and that was just, that, that's great. I love that. When I wrote my book, sometimes what I would get back was, oh, it's such an easy read. And when I first heard that, I was like offended. I was like, I like was upset. And then I remember I was talking to, I think it was my mom about it. And I made a comment about like, yeah, people always say it's an easy read. And I'm kind of like, I don't feel like that's a compliment. And my mom was like, are you kidding me? Nobody wants to read a book like that's a hard read. And we even think about, right, if we think about like somebody like Shakespeare or I read like philosophy from like ancient Greece, like those things are so challenging to read. Now they're deep and they're wise and there's yes. brilliance in them, but why don't we read them all the time? Because they're really hard to understand. And when I, when I heard it that way, I went, man, wait, writing a book that's an easy read is as nice because people can flow through it, right? They actually mm -hmm. will read your book. Nobody's going to read the book that's hard to read unless yes. they have to. I agree. What There's you... this book, um, uh, what is it? Learning fast and slow, thinking fast and slow. Mm -hmm. The content is amazing. But it was so difficult to get through that book. But the ideas are great. And, and it's unfortunate. That's one of the things that I've learned when I'm writing the book and let's say reading Nietzsche, which is my favorite philosopher, is not just about the ideas, it's how they're packaged. And mm -hmm. that's going to influence whether people read them or not, whether they connect with them or not. If you make it extremely complicated, then they can't get them. So it was a goal to try to write something that was easy to read. And yeah, you should feel pretty good that people say something easy to read. <laughs> what the point? For you, what was, um, how does it feel now, you know, like being a best-selling author, having written a book, are you, are you like me where you're like, I got to write more books. I like got to keep going. Or was this like the one thing that you needed to share with the world? And, and now you're, you know, that this is your contribution as a writer and now you're on to other things. Well, it's a funny story because I suffered through too much while writing the book. And I remember one time I was going to the same Starbucks to write. And one day they gave me a coffee for free. And I'm like, what's happening? He's like, well, you look so angry yesterday. I, we, we thought we, we messed up your coffee. I'm like, no, it's just that my days are coming here, opening my computer, looking at a screen and suffer. And <laughs> so that's why you see me miserable all the time. And, and I was complaining to a friend of how difficult it was. And then he's like, dude, you're going to finish. You're going to start another one because you love suffering. And to tell you the truth, I never enjoy hating something so much. And when I finished, I felt that emptiness. And it's the same with everything. When you play a video game and it's too easy, then you put it away. It's the challenge and then coming through that works. A lot of writing is editing. So the art of writing is really rewriting and editing. And I feel like it's putting a puzzle together and it's a puzzle that is fighting back. But when you get it right, oh man, so that feeling. And I knew when I finished, like, this is going to be my life. <laughs> I'm just going to keep writing. I have no choice. It's such a true statement about the, the writing is editing. I don't, I, that's my experience too. And that's the hardest part for me. I'm a, it's easy for the words to spill out. You know, mm -hmm. I can open my computer and write pages like very easily, but somebody, I, my, my kind of metaphor for it is it, it's like uh it's like, it's easy for me to excavate really great minerals out of the ground, like golds and diamonds. But when they come out, they're covered in dirt and like, they're not pretty. Right. And I need to give them to somebody to like polish them and make them beautiful. And that's, I think an editor's job, but usually we do have to do some editing right on our own as writers. We, we can't just write a terrible first draft and hand it to someone and go make it pretty. Nobody wants that. Right. Um, and so learning to be with, was that for me, the editing challenge was the hardest thing. Like I wrote the first draft of my book in a year, but then it took three more years to actually get it to like yep. a publishing place because I just couldn't get out of my own way when it came to like editing. What, what was that experience like for you? Uh, it was tough. I was working with this editor and she had sent me hundreds and hundreds of notes. I mean, the document was full of red stuff and it took me eight months to go through all that stuff, but working every day for about three hours a day. And when I finished, I sent it back to her. Then the following day, I received the email from her and I was expecting like some minor fixes and things like that. To my surprise, it was even more notes 
There was even more red in the document. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. And I sent her a message. I was freaking out. I had been, I don't know how long I had been working in the book already. I mean, it took me maybe two years to write. Then it was this eight months of editing. And I said, what did I do wrong? What's happening? She's like, no, at the beginning, I just wanted to take care of like the major things. Now we're really in the editing phase. And I remember just closing my computer and walking back home. That day I didn't write, I didn't work. I was crushed. And I thought about just giving it away, but you're so far into it that you can't step back. It's like, I have no choice. The only way around it is through. I need to finish this thing. And it took maybe another six months, but that one was discouraging. So it was tough. It's, it's I and mean, writing is a very lonely project. There's no one really there that understands what's happening and or even encourage you. And then the encouragement comes way after you finish when you don't really need the encouragement anymore. <laughs> so it's a lonely journey. And but I think when I look back, I loved all of it. <laughs> it's challenging, but that's that's what makes it enjoyable. I, I like that you talked about suffering too before, because I'm with you. Like if if something is too easy, most of us don't want it. Right. And even if we, we can do this with anything, like, you know, what's the typical thing in the dating world is like, Oh, people want what they can't have. Right. Like we love to be challenged. And I think, right. We, I don't know that we necessarily like love suffering, but we do like, it's like, we like the drama, right. We, you know, I know I'm, I'm shifting my relationship to hot yoga because for five years I would go and I would hate it, but I loved how I felt after. Right. So I would keep going. And I actually had the conversation recently with the yoga teacher. She was like, what's your favorite posture? And she was all excited. And I was like, I don't have one. I hate this. I like literally hate this. I'm miserable all class. And then I left and went, this is so dumb. Why am I miserable? Like, I, why am I paying and going and spending time being miserable at something? And it was this, hey, wait, I get to choose my relationship to it. Doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It's still going to be hard. It's still going to be hot. But what if I could create a new relationship to the yoga? And to your point, like I didn't shift. I only shifted one thing, right? I, I'm not not going to hot yoga. I'm not, not going to the same class. Everything's the same, except I'm changing the one thing, which is my out, my viewpoint. Instead of hot yoga being a suffering thing, I'm like, I just want it to be peace. I just want to experience peace when I'm in that room. And when I set my intention to that the first time, that's what I got. And it changed, you know, it just changed it. That's a good um, point. I'll tell you my perspective on that. I work sure. out every day. I don't take days off unless I'm very sick. And there's not a day that I wake up thinking, oh, this is so nice. I get to work out today. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. No, because <laughs> I know it's going to be tough. And if I'm doing it right, it should be tough because you're pushing yourself and that's not comfortable. Um, but then you do it and you come through. And I think in a way, when you were saying that um, of how we look at ourselves and that we like the drama, my perspective on that is that we want to be heroes of our own story. And there is no hero without challenge. We need to cross those barriers. We need to create walls that we then break. And that's what makes us heroes. Otherwise, there is nothing. So we need those challenges to come through and say, I made it. And that gives us so much pleasure. I remember reading about Usain Bolt. And we would think that a guy like that, who's won like so many medals and the greatest runner ever, that he would wake up and be motivated to work out. And to go to training, I was like, I hated it. I woke up every day and I knew it was going to be hard. I knew I was going to throw up. And people don't understand that, that it's so tough, but you still got to do it. And when you hear it from people like that is when you say, wow, yeah, I, I just make a bunch of excuses. It's not like these people were born with a different gene that makes them happy by training. No, <laughs> they have to push through the same resistance. <laughs> it's so, you know, it's so true and so funny because, you know, in, in this COVID year, there's so many people I see that like, oh, I gained my COVID 15 or I gained my COVID whatever. And like they like COVID was a reason to it's not about weight or what you look like, but COVID was a reason to like essentially just let yourself go and be unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And it's so counterintuitive because if you then you feel worse, right? You're already isolated. You already have all these things that and then now you're going to feel probably bad about yourself and not feel good in your body. Mm -hmm. And I am totally agree with you in the sense of I work out. I would say five days a week and I do different things from Peloton to hot yoga, to the gym, mm -hmm. to just like really long walks or bike rides out on the beach. Um, and I don't, in, and I don't enjoy it. Like I like the walks and I like the bike ride, the cash, those more like chill ones, but the, the hot yoga, the Peloton, the gym, I'm, I'm not a fan, but I 
get myself to go for the same reason, because I want to be better. I want to feel better. I want to experience myself as a better, as the, as the, as the best version of myself that I can. And I love that. I didn't know that it was the, that it was same bolt piece, but it's nice to hear that. Like, Hey, I'm not the only one suffering <laughs> through, yeah. through some of these not things. At all. <laughs> um, not at all. I was yeah. reading from uh, Charlie Munger. He's Almanac. And one of the things he talks about is like first degree and second degree consequences. So first degree consequence of working out is it's annoying. It's painful. You're pushing yourself and that's not meant to be comfortable. Like all growth comes from pushing through our barriers and pushing through our limits, which is going through discomfort. But then there is a second degree consequences, which you feel better is good for you. you. You're healthier. One of the reasons I work out every day is not just for my body. I do like bodybuilding, but I feel like it keeps me sane. It's better the psychological effects that gives me. And for some reason, I have a dark cloud over me. And exercising is one of those things that just shines light through it. So that's just who I am. And it helps me. Without exercise, I wouldn't have gone through the hardest times of my life. Like I've dealt with some mental stuff in the past that the only thing that got me out of it was exercising. So we we can't deny that we are also a body. So I, there's this great book from Christopher Hitchens on mortality. As he's dying from throat cancer and he's writing his account, he said, like, one of the greatest realizations that I found of in this process of dying is that I don't have a body. I am a body. And without this thing, I don't get to play in this game. I need to take care of it. So we, we try to pretend that a lot of it is just in the mind, but we are a body with our hormones, with our neurotransmitters, with all these other things that also take place that we just are not so aware of them, but they play a part. And to me, exercising just balances all of that. That's why it's so yeah. important. Yeah. And we've done this weird thing, especially, I mean, it's it's in the world, but really in the United States where, right, we've made things so vanity driven, right? Because sex sells and, and capital, the way we use sex and, and looks for capitalistic purposes, that there's almost like a backlash where people are like, like wanting to celebrate you know, essentially looking like maybe being very overweight or like, it's okay to look a certain way. And I'm not implying that it's, there's a certain way we should look. I like what you said is in, it's not actually about how you look. You could be very healthy and not have abs and and be in like perfect shape. A lot of people that have great physical looking bodies are actually not healthy people, Um, right? It's not healthy to have 2% body fat. That's not actually like a healthy thing. And I think what, what you, what you're, what I love what you're referring to, because it's, there's so many people that say we're not a body. We're just this, it's just, we're this spiritual thing inside of a body. But what I like is that the experiences that we have is what you just kind of said, is it is made possible because of the body. Yes. You know, and we can't separate one thing from the other. We are part of it. Our body is a huge part of our identity of who we are, how we experience the world. Mm -hmm. And that's not denying it. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing. That's just, it's just a, it's a, it's not a bad or good thing that they both exist, right? We can be a spiritual thing and this body is our vehicle, but you know, if we were race car drivers, the car that we drive impacts the experience we have as a race car. Yeah, driver. That's a great analogy for sure. You know? For sure. It does. If you want to spend a little bit more time on, on that topic, I, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine said he wanted to do a fitness shoot. And I was looking for a challenging project. I was living in Japan at that time. I said, give me a couple of months. And what came after was just madness. I mean, I overhauled all my diet. I was working out twice a day. And the last month going into the shoot is just insane because you cut out all your carbs. You, you're you sick and you feel sick and you look sick. Yeah. Uh, and it's horrible and it destroys your sleep, sleep, everything. I was on single digits body fat and you work out like that for one single day, which is the shoot. If someone saw me, not through the camera, but in real life, I, I look malnourished because I was. Yeah. But then to the camera, you look great. And then you do that and it looks amazing. I have those pictures. And one of the things I did a post recently that said, it's people complain or they criticize promoting impossible standards. And my point is there are no impossible standards. There are unreasonable efforts. And what's important is to show the process behind those results. So people can decide for themselves if that's what they want to do. Someone asked me like, how did you get into that shape? It's like, well, I became really unhealthy. And now, you know. And it was horrible. And I was destroying myself. I was destroying my body, destroyed my sleep to get those pictures. 
but it was a project and, and it was worth it for me because I wanted to see if I could do it. But then never again, I went down to that level of body fat because you're it's unhealthy. Um, and that is the point. So, but if you show what's behind it, it's like, okay, now I understand. One of the things on the premise of the book is that most of the time what we see is the end result. So it's like the magic effect. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing the process behind it. So when we see it, like we could never do that. And sometimes we wish we would do it. Like people admire a musician on stage. Like, I want to do that. But if you saw the grueling hours, plain scales for hours on end, alone in a room, then you'll be like, you know what? No, I don't feel like it that much. <laughs> Same thing. When think of, people think about writing, they imagine going to a cabin in the woods and just like the words flowing. No, 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 no. It's you <laughs> suffering in front of a screen, editing that thing because it's horrible. And it's horrible for many drafts until it becomes a little bit better and acceptable. <laughs> and then you deal with it. It's such a, I, I've, sorry, I've, I've read through that aspect. I probably read about half the book at this point. And I got, through, there was this, that piece that I, that was one of the pieces I loved because it's subconscious, right? We we're not choosing. I'm not looking at, at, um, let's say like a pianist and going, God, I would love to do that. And, and I can't ever do that. Like it's all happening instantaneously in my mind. Like, Oh, I'm not good enough. I'll never be able to do that. Or I try to play piano once. Right. And I'm terrible. I don't know how to do anything. I try a few times. I'm still terrible. And that you, you make it really clear point in the book about how we see the end point and it's like, Oh, we want to do it, but we don't ever think about all the, the hours and you do it through a Michelangelo sculpture at one point. Yes. Yes. And I think that's great. Cause like, and you even talk about how like Michelangelo was not born with special DNA that made him a sculpture. The, and you use the, I like the, 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 um, the back and forth used with basketball. Like mm -hmm. if you're a basketball player, just because there's a lot of tall people that are not in the NBA, right? Just yeah. because you're tall does not guarantee you a spot in the NBA. There's plenty of college basketball players who never go beyond college. And that the, that yes, in a sport like basketball, being tall does give you an advantage, right? If you're five feet tall, it's going to be much harder. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It's just going to be more challenging. And if you're, you're six, eight, you have some advantages, but it's still going to demand. It's a high price to pay to get to that level of yes. excellence. But with something like, you know, being a sculptor, there's no, what made him Michelangelo incredible. What he was, was practice was just doing something for hundreds of thousands of hours. Mm -hmm. And we see the final result and go, Oh, I could never do that. Or how cool would it be to do that? But that's not possible. Or like, or we deflect it like, Oh, they're special. They're, they're artistic. They have special genes, yes. um, which comes back to the consequences, right? We don't want to do with, we don't want to not eat carbs for a whole month or practice no. sculpting for 50 years. We want the result, but not the process. And many yeah. times we're ignorant about the process. Mm -hmm. So then we we feel bad about not getting the same results when not, we're not doing the same process. It's like, that that's impossible. Someone would not complain of saying, well, I don't have big muscles. Like, well, you're not lifting weight. Uh, and, both, <laughs> and the other part is that unrealistic expectations. So people pick up new skills and they don't, they don't see a lot of progress in the first few days. So they think they don't have what it takes, that it's not for them, that they're not talented or whatever. And it's because many times as adults, we're already good at certain things and we forgot what it feels like to go through the learning process, to start all over and suck for a while. Um, but everyone has to go through the same process. So people don't often think about this, but Mozart had to learn scales and he made tons of mistakes learning them. I can guarantee you, no one escapes the process. No one ever. Everyone has to go from being a beginner to intermediate to advanced. But sometimes we just want to be advanced in two weeks. And if we're not, then, oh, I, I just don't have what it takes. I don't have the talent. That's not my thing. I'm going to try something else. Like, no, we ha you have unrealistic expectations of what it takes to become good at something. Because our society just likes to show us the end result. And, and to a point, that's okay. I mean, you, you don't watch NFL teams practicing. You watch the games. People want to see the game, want to see the competition. But if you base yourself on the competition and never look at the process, then you're missing a big chunk. So if you want to go into a, a skill, you got to see how it's practiced. You got to see what it's comprised of. So one quick example. One time I saw this plane going, going above. I was having a coffee with a friend. She's like, oh, it must feel really good to fly a plane. And I thought, you know what? Yeah. And the following week, I took on a flying lessons. What I found that I thought it was going to give me this sense of joy and freedom. No, 
no, no, no. Flying a plane takes a lot of planning, like a weather reading and following aerospace rules and then communication. So it wasn't what I was looking for. And sometimes we need to understand that because we see someone performing this skill. We think that must be so awesome. No, you got to see how it's done. What's the process behind it? And then you get to choose if it does what you like or not. And so it's, that's such a good example. I would think the exact same thing. And you're right. There's a million factors that we don't even consider thinking about, right? We're just like, oh, yep. just fly, just use joystick. We just want to <laughs> exactly. be so nice to be up there and look out at the world. And it's like, no, that's not, no, I think to your point, like you get to a place where you become an expert pilot and you, all those things become automatic, yes. but, but that's exactly. how many hundreds of hours, thousands of hours, hundreds of thousands of hours, who knows? And do um, you enjoy that process? That's the other question. Yeah. Like, for example, do you enjoy editing? And if not, maybe writing is not for you because it's not sitting in a cabin and letting the, the words flow. It's not like that at all. What just, you know, you've spent a lot of time because you write articles and you've been, you've been published besides the book, you've been in, you know, places like time entrepreneur Forbes. Um, what have you, and, and I, I don't, I should actually say, and you've done a ton of studying like you to write, this isn't a book that you, someone just sits down. It's not a piece of fiction that you kind of dream up in your mind and you put out, there's a lot of science, a lot of actual research, just in this podcast, you've dropped like three other authors names and what's you've, what you've learned from them. Yeah. What's the biggest thing that's changed about you through this process of learning about excellence and like success really in the process? I think it's something that we touched on and it's that commitment to the process. When I said the, the story of Usain Bolt and also I was watching a documentary about him and then I saw him running and then he stops and starts throwing up and then he keeps running like it was nothing. And for a moment, my mind was saying like, this has to be for dramatic purposes. And then he keeps doing it. And in interviews, he says, after he lost to um, someone, Blake, in some championship, he said that following month, I pushed myself so hard. I was throwing up twice a day when I was training. And something in your mind says like, that can't be possible. And it makes you realize I'm, I'm just so weak. I, my willpower is nothing. I mean, that's what makes the difference. It's not the genes, it's not the everything else. Because yeah, someone can have an aptitude for something, but unless you develop it, unless you put in the work, you're never gonna get far. Um, so seeing those people so committed to the process to becoming better, to give their best, to push themselves, to be willing to face discomfort. That's what kind of shone a light to me and saying, look, you have many times the same opportunities and you're not taking them, not because you're this or you're that, it's because you don't want to. Um, going back to that example that you said about basketball is the skills of basketball have nothing to do with height. So if there were height divisions in basketball, like we have weight divisions for fighting to account for obvious physical advantages, there will be amazing players of all heights. They will just belong to different categories because the skills of dribbling, shooting, rebounding, all these things have nothing to do with height. So in that sense, um, I hear a lot of people that say, well, that was the point if I could not become the best. Well, yeah, to become the very best in the world, you need a combination of things. You, you need luck, you need great coaches, um, you need some some sort of natural advantages, your genes, some good genes on your side, which accounts for a portion. But if you want to be the very, very best, you need all those things working for you. Now, to become one among the best, that's different. We have to remember that Michael Phelps was not the entire swimming team of the U.S. Okay, there were other really good swimmers there, top of the world. Um, but he was the best. So he was at the very top. Still, there was people that were very good. And then the last section is your best. And for you to be your best, you don't need anything. You need you. And is that not noble enough that you can become the very best basketball player there is if you're four or five? I don't know. But you learn the skill and you can master the skill. So is that not worthy enough? And that's something that I think a lot of. I might not become the greatest writer or one of the renowned writers of the world, but I could be become the best writer I can be. And that's enough to push me. That's enough to keep trying to get better. So it's like one of those things, like giving away that obsession of I need to be the best, or if I can't be the best, then why bother? But I can be the best. And what it takes is commitment and sacrifice. So one of the things, this like, I, I didn't put it in the book, but it's something a little bit too dark. I'm more of a dark character. 
I left it away, but I always like saying it. And I think it was the beginning of the mastery chapter that said, mastery shines only upon those willing to make sacrifices. And the idea, what I wanted to write instead was the gods of mastery demand human sacrifice. And it cannot come from anyone else but you. But if you're lucky enough to find something you're passionate about, then it's a sacrifice you willingly make. To me, that summarizes what it takes. Is that your quote? Or did you read that somewhere? No, that's me. That's good. That's really, it's like, it's, I think it's dark, but it's also not at the same time. Because <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's very I, Nietzsche style. Who, many people call him dark, but in reality, I think of Nietzsche as a romantic. He, he's saying life, yes, is suffering, but are, there are things worth suffering for. Yeah. So yeah, me, and you're like not a actually, realistic romantic. Yeah, and you're not saying we act the gods of mastery actually demand like blood and like killing humans. It's that it it like demands human it demands sacrifice from humans. Yeah. Right. Whatever. I love that the Usain Bolt thing is yeah, most of us are not willing. We're just not willing to do what it would take to become forget about the best or our best. It's too much, you know. Um, people say to me, I feel like you're somebody who would do you do things like this. Um you know, I did for 2020, I went vegan for the whole year, cold Turkey. I'm just, I'm going to be a vegan and see how this works. And I found out it works really well for me. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm about a 90% vegan now. I did the whole year. And then I decided I wanted to be able to live a little bit more flexible. So I'm, I, it worked for me, which I would have never known unless I did something dramatic like that. Uh -huh. But I do things like, you know, I just did, I was like, I need to take a week and just do no coffee. Because I felt like I was depending. And then I realized, oh, coffee has really no impact. So I can drink it or not drink it. I um, I tried to do a dating detox. 30 days, no dating, no flirting, no sex, no. And I failed miserably, right? Like I failed. I didn't even make it through day three. I, like, <laughs> I felt flat on my face. But I think that, but what I learned, but I learned about myself in just the like setting up the high bar. And now look, I could try it again. I could set up different structures. To me, it was about all these things. People always say to me, they're like, yeah, you, you do all these weird things. And I'm like, yeah, because I want to just be the best version of me. And the only way I can be the best version of me is to understand me. And the only way I can understand yes. me is to get myself out of comfort. Right. And so it's, I wouldn't tell other people, hey, go on a dating detox, don't drink coffee. Everybody mm -hmm. has their different things. But, and it, and you, when you were talking about the, the fitness, that fitness thing, that that's the same exact thing, right? You weren't trying yes. to be a bodybuilder. You just put yourself through a rigorous challenge. But that's an excellent point, Alex. And it's about choice. So one of the things that happened when I cut up all the carbs is that I, after a month or so, there are some that you crave the most. And that's when I found out what is a non-negotiable in my life. Because then when you're just eating whatever you want, you have everything in your home. Like you have cookies and you have candy bars and you have all these other things. And when I was doing the dick talks and basically going through that month of no carbs, no sugar, then your body starts craving something more than everything else. And that's when I realized, you know what? All the other stuff I was just eating out of habit. But some things that after I, I quit them, they went back into my life because I didn't want a life without them. Like, I like bread. I don't want a life without bread. Whatever. I love chocolate. So I eat that dark chocolate. It's something that I took off. But then I decided, you know what? I want this back in my life. But now it's a choice. It's not by default because I really like it yeah. and I want it. Yep. So now it's by design. And that yep. makes all the difference. I love that. I was, I went to a, I was at a steakhouse the other night. I got taken out to dinner. Somebody took me out to dinner as a thank you. And we went to a steakhouse and I haven't had a steak in since 2019. And I said to the waitress, I didn't even remember how to order. Like, I didn't know what to, I know how I would want it cooked. Like I'm a like burn the top and the bottom and have it raw in the middle if I'm going to okay. eat it. But I said to the, I said to the waitress, I go, I don't, you guys have like 12 different choices. I don't know. And she goes, starts describing. I was like, listen, I'm a vegan. <laughs> and she was like, wait, wait, you, she looked at me confused. And I was like, look, I'm a vegan, but like, I'm not, I don't believe in like that. You have to, everything has to be like a hundred percent, you know, or zero, right? Like there's a, some, and she was like, Oh, okay. And then, but it was this interesting, this interesting relationship, right? Cause when we, we, we put labels on things and then everyone needs us to fit in that label perfectly. And no one fits like in any label perfectly or to your point, maybe they do and they're miserable inside of it. Like I agree with you. I don't want to live a life without bread. 
I also don't want to eat bread every day because if I eat bread every day, I'm not going to feel good. And I'm not going to want to live that life either. Um, I want to ask you about the places you've lived because we we were talking about this before we hit record and you were telling me some, you were giving me some gold. Um, So you grew up in Colombia, you're currently in Montreal, and then you've spent a decent amount of time living in Japan. Yeah, Japan is the best. Yeah, you said that. I'm curious though, really quickly, can you give me like a, what has each place given you in your life? Like, what did you get from Colombia? What do you get from Montreal? What do you get from Japan? Sure. I'll make you one comment just really quickly. Sure. Because uh, I think it's a good idea not to let it pass. When you were talking about going the extreme and having gone vegan, I think sometimes we need to go to the extremes to find our medium. Um, mm-hmm. is, is there, then we realize where we want to fall on the spectrum. So that was a quick comment I wanted to yeah. make. Just keep it there. Yeah, I think it's totally there. agree. Um, for me, I think Colombia, Colombia was special because growing up, it was a rough place and there was a lot of crime. I mean, there still is some, but not as bad as before. And those are realities of the country. Most Colombians don't like other Colombians talking about that, about the country, but like there are some realities. Uh, it's, it's not the, the softest place ever. So just growing up, you kind of get used to that and you think that's life. And when I got to Canada and I would be like looking behind my back, seeing who's walking behind me and things like that. And people are like, well, what are you doing? Like, I'm just making sure no one's going to mug me. And they're like, what? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, what, you never been mugged? And people are like, no. Like, oh, strange. Wait, hold on. Uh, seven out of 10 of my friends have been mugged or robbed or broken into their homes or something yeah. happened to them. And they're like, no, that that's not normal. And that's when you kind of go through the shock of, oh, wow. I always thought life was like that. So when you grow in it, you don't realize it, right? And I guess that gave me that perspective and that kind of covering after myself and my things. And within all that chaos and within what you see a lot of violence, then you also have a lot of trust because in the roughest places, then trust has a high, high value. So the people you do trust, it's really important. And because um, we have to stay together, right? Because there are so many threats outside. Whereas here, and the other part that I love about my culture is that it's very warm and very welcoming. It's very easy to make friends. So you can start a conversation just about anywhere. Here, people are very distant. They're colder. Is everyone kind of on their own. And you see it also in their family uh, dynamics. Many people don't know anything about their families. And when they turn 18, their parents want to kick them out. And, and then the parents complain because they get put in a old people's home when they're old. It's like, of course, because you have no relationship. You kick them out when they were 18. South America, you stay at home until you get married. Your parents don't want you to leave. You don't want to leave. You want to stay together. These are the most important people in your life. Um, so that strong family bond, I talk to my mom every other day. Also to my brother, to my dad, I used to talk every day. So. I enjoy that that part of like very a lot of closeness in the community, in the family, and with friends. People here call, oh yeah, my bartender friend. No, that's the guy who serves you drinks and you know his name. That's not a friend. To me, a friend is someone that knows my goals, my dreams, what I've been going, what I've gone through, all those different things. Not just someone that I meet on the weekend to have a beer or two. That to me is an acquaintance. So I have like a different feel for that, and I notice that it's harder for me to make friends here because I don't get to have that same level of connection. It, it just becomes harder. I hundred so percent resonate with you. I feel <laughs> like most, and maybe that you just said beautifully, what I've never been able to say is that, you know, people I heard the other day, it's like, would you rather have, you know, 50,000 followers or four, four really good friends. And most people are chasing 50,000 followers. Yep. But what would actually give us satisfaction would be four really good friends. Yes. And, and if we take away the followers to your point, it's like, yeah, the bartender's our friend, the, the, the neighbor's our friend, but are they really our friends? Or is it to your, to, to your point, it's like all surface level stuff. Yeah. And that is my, that you, you really beautifully stated how I feel all the time, which is like, man, I just feel, I can't stand the surface level conversations it's it's that is uncomfortable to me whereas other people seem like it's fine i'm just like they seem to go about life just having those types of relationships and i understand it to your point of the thousands of followers versus the friends i think that a lot of 
or approach to different things, money, dating, friends, is like a starving man thinking about a buffet. You think that you would want to go in and eat everything that's there. But when you finally are let in, then you realize that all you needed was a really good meal. But because we approach it with this starving mentality, same with money. People no longer want to make a million dollars. They want to make a billion dollars. Like, really? Really? No, it's because you're starving. Because you don't have it, so you think you want it all. Yeah. But you would realize that with a couple million, you would be more than set off for the rest of your life and it'll be fine. And all your needs and wildest dreams would be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. um, so I think people also approach it the same with dating. It's like, I, I want to go out with all these women. In reality, you're coming from a place of scarcity. And if you had more abundance in your life, you realize you just not want mm. like one, two nice girls that you go out with and, and that'll be enough. Oh man, you just threw like a spear through my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, I'm, I'm in the same place because I've been there. <laughs> and it's, it's something I have to fight every day. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I say that, hey, we all, it's, uh, you know, we all are challenged by different things, right? Like it sounds like you and me, our health, our well being, it's like we got that. You know, it sounds like our writing, our businesses, like we have this, like we're very, like it's, it's just seems like very goal oriented and, and, driven by our values and whatnot. And for me, what, what knocks me off my railroad tracks is, is dating and women. It, 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 it has me revert to my ego. It has me revert to a younger version of me. And it's the, it's a, it's a challenge, right? It's, and into, I think to your point, it's the thing I want most, right? It's the, like the love, that deep yes. connection and relationship and a family. And so it, to your, even to your earlier points, like it has to be this thing that I have to like, I have to break through because if it was just easy, I, it, it wouldn't be my thing, you know? Yes, man. I have the book for you. It's called the evolution of desire and okay. it's evolutionary psychology on how this, the sexes evolved and what were their mating strategies. So why we act the way we act. One word of caution though. Once you read that book, you can't unread it. It'll mess you up for the rest of your life. Good. It sounds like what I need. I just read a book. I just read a book that was similar. Um, my dad took it from me, which blew my mind that he was willing to read it. Um, but it's called the centerfold syndrome. Okay. And it's it's basically just about how it's really written for like the like American culture, but I think it applies to like, it's pretty universal about how boys are indoctrinated essentially subconsciously by, you know, their family, the media, the culture to simply view women from essentially this, that he describes the centerfold syndrome as like th these various aspects of how we view them as like a trophy, how they make us feel good about ourselves and, and all these different things. And when you read it, you're like, Oh my God, this is, this is, and you could see it. I could see it in my, I was reading it in Hawaii with my family and I could see it in my brother in one certain aspects. I could see it, all of it in me. I could see it in my dad, who I feel like I learned it from. Um, it's not, it's not a great book because he talks a lot about the, like the people he works with, but the concept of what he does is again, you can't unsee it. Now, when I like look at a woman, I'm like, Oh, I'm doing that. I have, I'm doing the thing that he talks about. But you know, what's crazy. A lot of this are evolution desires evolutionary desires and drives and sometimes understanding them doesn't change a thing It's like you can understand gravity and you can't prevent things from falling yeah so it's even worse because now you're aware of the problem and you can't fight the forces that have been raging for hundreds of thousands of years of evolution yeah so you will like this book well yeah, thanks I, desire. Nice. It's, it's a hard read because it's very scientific it's a professor of the university of austin of texas in austin and it's all how the sexes develop different strategies for mating. And then the, one of the greatest takeaways is that we're not meant to, to be compatible. It's a competition. And we have different strategies to compete. So one of the greatest adaptive challenges of men was paternity, knowing who was the father. Mm -hmm. And then for women was choosing right, because choosing the, the wrong mate meant starvation for her and for her baby and things like that. So it's very interesting to see how... Each sex had different problems for which it developed strategies to overcome them. Yeah. But then those strategies were going against putting them at odds with each other. So that, that's just a crazy thing. And it talks a lot about examples from different species and stuff. Don't want to spend too much time on the subject, although it's one of my favorite subjects of all. Yeah, it's I'll, I'll actually recommend it. Before, you, before we leave this completely, because yes. you've dropped a few, because I still want to hear about we didn't get to japan yet really yes um japan. but well but while we're here wait really quick top what are your top three that was a, a book you just said it's like one of your favorites what are your what are the first ones that come to mind as your favorite reads but my favorite reads okay yeah. so anything robert green 
Robert Greene is just amazing. He's my, my favorite author. So the 40 Laws of Power, the, the Art of Seduction, um, the 50th Law, the Laws of Human Nature. Robert Greene is just some, one of the greatest authors that's ever lived. The quality of research and the, uh, his writing, it's, it's just everything together. I, I aspire to be able to write like he writes. So one mm. of the things when you ask me what, why I try to improve so much on the writing of the book, Many times I would write a paragraph and be like, if Robert Greene were to read this paragraph, what would he think of it? It's awesome. And I was like, it's not good enough. Let's write yeah. again. <laughs> so Robert Greene, there is this great book. It's a short read. So for people that don't maybe enjoy reading so much that are listening to this, there is this book called Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart. It's a very short book. It's very easy to read. And it's amazing. It's this psychotherapist, like 50 years of uh, doing uh, therapy. and He's just compiling the major problems that people come up to him with mm. and what the solutions to those problems are. One of the lines that I love the most out of that book, it's uh, one of the names of the chapters is only bad things happen fast. Everything that's good in life, you have to grow through it. <laughs> oh my God. Just like another spear through me. Um, it's so good. I'm I, Everything for me is like, it's uh, it's fast, right? Like I make everything happen faster. I don't make it happen at all, but it's, it's actually not true, right? The book took a long time. It wasn't fast. Mm -hmm. um, that's awesome. What's it? Do you have a third? Do you have a third one? A third author? A third book? I have many. A Man's Search for Meaning is a great book. Yeah. Uh, when Bread Becomes Air, it's another great book. When Bread Becomes Air. Yes. Uh, that's one book that you know when sometimes you just burst out laughing. This is the first time in my life that I burst out crying. Like I started oh, wow. one of the chapters, and it's like I, I can't believe this is happening. That someone's going through this. So is the is a true account of this surgeon who's been training patients with cancer. And the book kind of starts like, I was looking at the x-ray and I knew the diagnostic. It's like, it's cancer, it's all over the place. It's uh, untreatable. The difference this time is that I was looking at my own x-ray. And he's just describing the whole process all the way to the end. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. But with everything heartbreaking, it also gives you that sense of, what the hell am I doing with my life? And are these things really important? Shouldn't I be enjoying yeah. more and doing all the things? So it's one of those books that just kind of puts everything back in perspective. Um, amazing read. I, I have plenty. I don't know. Uh, Happy by Ro uh, Darren Brown. It's all about happiness and how the sure. idea of happiness has evolved through time mm -hmm. because they have very different concept of happiness before. So he goes through the Stoics. He goes through like ancient Greece. He goes to um, then psychoanalysis and all these other things. Uh, it's a great read. And unfortunately, his his brand is he's a magician and he's a showman. So I think he doesn't. He hasn't gathered the credibility as an author, but if you read that book, like it has nothing to envy some of our greatest authors that talk about philosophy, like Orion Holiday, which is also awesome. I love his book. Yeah. He also yeah, yeah. is the way it goes to the enemy. Um, so yeah, that's another great book that probably most people don't know about. It's called Happy. Cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's usually a lot of people come on here and they'll tell me books either before or after, and I've, I've read them They're on my shelf, you know, or I know of them and I'm, you know, but you actually just gave me a handful that I, I've read Ryan holidays. I've read all his books, but all of these other ones I have not read. So thank you for that. Um, right. okay, wait, let's talk about Japan as we wrap up. Sure. Um, what did you, what are you, what have you learned by living in Japan? What have you learned from Japan? You know, just you can dive in there. Sure. Some of the things that I took the most out of Japanese culture is their attention to detail and their high standards for quality. So they have this word Kodawari. If you look at the book, so that's the name of the imprint that I chose. So Kodawari is like this obsessiveness with detail and with quality, even if no one else can see it. So there is this famous story of uh, Steve Jobs who said that the interior of the Mac had to be beautiful, even if no one saw it. And people always hear that story like, oh my God, he was such a genius and this visionary. No, that's the entire Japanese culture. And most likely he picked it up from Japan because he was a fan of Japanese culture. He traveled there and he picked up a lot of the cultural um, way of doing things. So in Japan, they all do that. And it's for someone that hasn't experienced it, it's eye-opening. I remember when I'm in Japan, I wake up around 4 a.m. to go to the gym. And I see people washing the sidewalk in front of their shops. The shop won't be open for hours yet. But at 4 a.m., they're washing the sidewalk. That's not even their job. 
and they're doing that. I saw a guy vacuuming the sidewalk in front of his shop. Like, this is insane. And you see them cleaning under the tables, things like that. Because to them, that's important. They have a standard of quality that they know no one else is going to notice it, but they do. So in Japan, it's a lot of how you do your job, not necessarily what kind of job you have. At one time, I went to do this mall, and in Japan, everything's crowded. In Tokyo, everything's crowded. But they need to clean the, the toilets every now and then. So a team comes in, and they tell you, like, sorry, the toilets are going to be closed for about two minutes. And it looks like a SWAT team. They're lining up, ready to come in. And they put the ribbon. It's like, you can't come in. And they go in. And I've never seen someone clean urinals with the quality that this guy was doing it. Like you have utmost respect for the way they treat their job, whatever the job is. It's like, wow, I can't believe this. And most people here are like, yeah, whatever. You go to a story that I like to tell. I used to go to a Starbucks too over there when I was writing. And they make your coffee and it's like it's deliver they're delivering your baby. One time a drop fell on the side of the cup and they threw it out and made another one because it wasn't perfect. And the way they think about it is, Maybe this is the hundred coffee I make today, but it's the only one this person gets to drink today. It's really important to him. But here it's like, oh, another order, whatever. And they mm -hmm. make it sometimes. I remember when I came back and they were making this coffee and the whole thing was just kind of falling apart. I'm like, guys, this is just kind of spilling all over. Like, here's another cup. And they don't care. They're just moving orders as fast as they can. And most people, what I feel in many places, and you see it in restaurants and stuff, they act as if they should be doing something better. As is this temporary. Like, well, I'm waiting tables, but like, they feel like they should be yeah. doing something better. And yeah. they just kind of just do it to comply with what they need to do. Not in yeah. Japan. Because in Japan, your honor is how well you do your job. Not necessarily what job you have. So that to me is like, oh, wow, I should make my book to have a lot of quality, even if no one reads it. I didn't know the book was going to be successful. I had no idea, but it was for me. All the details, all the quality that I put into it. Yes, it's not perfect. It's not an amazing book. I'm not an amazing writer, but I know I give it my all. My all and that's what matters. Mm -hmm. And that's success. Whatever happened after when I published it, that was out of my hands, but I mm -hmm. knew I gave it all. So I took a lot of that from Japanese culture. I, I can't speak for people listening, but I'm, I love this. Um, and, and there's a lot of areas, right. Where I could say like in my life, like I have, you know, where nobody sees like things can be messy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, what I hear, it's like, it's quality over speed or quality over the results. Right. It's like, it's really about, it's, a, it's integrity. That's yes. it's a, it's, it's, it sounds like it's a culture that values integrity more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's beautiful. Uh, Let's make you honorable. So one story about the book, you mentioned the Michelangelo. And I opened the book with a Michelangelo quote that I saw somewhere. And I thought like, did he really say that? Okay, let's start looking. So I did some research. I couldn't find it. Then I read his biography. It was about, I don't know, it took me two weeks to read his biography. I couldn't find it. And then I watched a lecture that was about 12 hours the master lecturer of Michelangelo, trying to find some clues if is this possible. Then I wrote the professor who did the talk and wrote the, the biography of Michelangelo. I wrote to him and I said, I found this quote and I don't know. And he's like, look, with Michelangelo, there are many things that he didn't say, but then they get got passed into history like he did say them. So a lot of Michelangelo is also myth and it's real, but it all comes down to now that's Michelangelo. It becomes real at one point. Mm -hmm. That made me change the quote from saying Michelangelo said to Michelangelo was supposed to have said. So that was weeks and weeks of work to add those, those two things of saying what supposedly said instead of Michelangelo said, because it was important to me to get that right. No one would notice that. No one would even care or, or even notice that they're, they, they're supposedly is there. But to me, that was important. So the book is full of little things like that. And I, I did it for me. So I take that from Japanese culture. You quality for you. And when you get to the end, because you told me you were kind of halfway through, I talk about this concept of bestism. Because there is this popular idea now that done is better than perfect. And yeah, many times like the search for perfection is a form of procrastination caused by fear. Mm -hmm. And it's a dead end but also rushing through the finish line just to get over with and to avoid the hard work, it's mediocre. Yeah. So what we should aim for is bestism, giving our very best 
holding up high standards until we can't make it any better. And then that's when we get to move on. So it's not perfection what we're looking for, it's giving our best, even if it falls far from perfect. One of the examples in the book is I wrote this paragraph. I wrote it about 60 times when I, I stopped counting how many times I had written it. And I couldn't make it any better. And by the 60th time, I said, my skills as a writer are not allowing me to make this better. And it's about time to move on. I did my best. Yeah. That's when you get to move on. Far from perfect, but I gave my all. I love that. That's a beautiful... I'm going to, I'm going to, I mean, unless there's anything else you need to say about Japan or whatnot, I think that's a, a pretty incredible place to end because uh, you just said it. I don't even need to say anything else. You said it perfectly. Is there anything I else? That you, I think that's a good place to end. I could talk yeah. about Japan the entire day because I love it so much. There's so many things that given me, I wish I could live there and, and I hope I end my days there, but uh, I think that's a good place to, to put an end to it. It's a, it's a great concept and I hope people can take that home. Nick, I want to just thank you. Um, first of all, this was super fun. Um, it flew, the time flew by. We went longer than I thought we would. Uh, I could keep going. I have a million more questions. Um, you say what I really loved about this conversation is you say a lot of things that I've thought about or that I'm like working on with clients or with myself, like trying to grow, but you have like a very, you explain them very clearly. Um, and you make and you 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 have stories and examples, whether they be through books or through actual experiences that really lay out that coffee example, right? Just the the culture of Starbucks versus here and when in, in bestism versus perfection. Like it's not perfection or just getting stuff out. There's a there's another version that that, that we don't talk about that could exist. Yes. Um and I think these, to me at least, with this, it's cool how it always comes full circle. This is more examples of re shifting or adapting your relationship to things. Let's change your relationship to get the work out or get it from perfection to like, what if you just did your best? Now you, only, you know what that is, right? You know, you know, if you're cutting corners, you know what your best is, you know, where you stop and you're the only one that's going to know most of the time. Um, but I just thank you for the conversation, the fun, the learning. Um, I'm excited to to continue to read this book. I'm excited to see what you write next. It's funny that you brought up Ryan Holiday because I didn't realize that, but there's a, I think you hear this as a compliment. Like if you were to write a couple more books, it's to me is like you're, you're in that similar, it's like that similar kind of vein of learning and asking questions and bringing, you know, he takes really challenging subjects, right? Like the Stoics and he makes them very digestible. Yes. He's um, a great influence. Say yeah. Sure. And, and it just, when you said it, it was like, Oh, that's, I, I feel like similar as I read your book is like, it could be, you know, you're on your way to being your own Ryan, your own Ryan holiday. Um, okay. I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> um, but this, thanks for being here and sharing Thank and you letting so us for learn from me. you. This was great. Uh, we got to do it again. I, I would love to. Um, I want to tell people where they can find more about you, which is unlimitedmastery.com. You're also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and it's they're both under your, it's like a it's like a short version of your first and last name, but I'm just going to spell it. It's V-E-L-Z-N-I-C-K. That's Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm mostly anything? on Instagram, but the easiest thing would be to go to the blog, to Unlimited Mastery. And there are all the links to my social media. Um, but yeah, I mostly hang out on, on Instagram. It's hard to keep up with, with so many things. And I find yeah. that then I don't do the important work. So I try to keep it to one thing, even though I have accounts in different places. But sure. I most of the time, I'll be hanging out on Instagram. Thanks a lot, man. Um, it, Thanks, was a it was a pleasure. Um, I'm like, I got to go to Japan. It's like the one, like oh, you yeah. left me with a lot of things, <laughs> but I also think that like, you know, life, life shows up in certain ways for certain reasons. And I've been talking about Asian countries for a long time and Japan is up there on the list. And now you just showed up and you're like, you sold it. You should be the real estate agent for the whole, you know, for the whole country. Um, you let me know when you're going and maybe I'll be there. I'll show you around. I'm going to think is that Tokyo has done a really bad job marketing their city because it has something for everyone. So they don't know what to focus on. But you like temples, they have it. Do you like gardens? They have it. Do you have the technology robot kind of thing, neon light? They have it. They have everything. I promise you, you'll find a place I'm, in Tokyo that hits your soul. 
I'm sold. Uh, this is not a hard sell. I mean, I'm, I'm, you did a good job before we even started recording. Um, awesome. Th- so, thanks again for being to here. See you there. Uh, everyone, go, li- let me know. everyone listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for, uh, you know, um, thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing it. You know, who needs to hear this episode today? Maybe it's you, maybe it's someone, you know, but who needs to hear this episode? Who needs to read Nick's book, learn, improve, master, Whose life could you change if you shared it? I'm thinking about it like that cup of coffee, right? Like instead of like posting this on your social media, so 50 people here, who's one person that you could like send this to and be like, you need to listen to this episode. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream. And I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.